0: Our first scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. Listen for the word of God. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. Our second scripture reading today comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Listen for the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
1: When I was a little girl, growing up in Dallas, Texas, Raised in a very conservative background, I loved Jesus. I mean, I did. When I was five or six years old, I had this feeling that Jesus was my friend. And when I went to Zion Lutheran um, Elementary, parochial school, um, and I felt difficulty or conflict, I always turned to Jesus as my best friend. In fact, I remember one Sunday after our church, Mother would always cook pot roast and potatoes and all that good southern stuff. We ate so much we'd have to take a nap afterwards. Never felt guilty about naps. That was good. But I remember coming back when mom was cooking and I said, Mama, and a missionary had just come to our church and really just told us the Word of God. And I was very deeply moved and I said, Mama, I'm going to go to Africa. And she said, darling, no, you're not. <laughs> I went, well, mama, but that's what he said. If we love Jesus, we're going to go out there and we're going to change the world. And I felt that with all my heart. I didn't get to Africa until I was in my early 30s, but that was a felt experience for me when I was young. And then, you know, I I guess I got swept up in the whole evangelical Christian Jesus movement and I became born again and I got into the Word of God and the Scripture and then I went to a graduate school where they integrated biblical truth with Christianity and psychology. And then I had a ministry in the megachurches of Orange County and I, I taught the Word of God And I did it with a way, uh, sort of applying it in a way that integrates um, biblical and psychological truths. And, um, well, I'm going to tell the rest of that story in just a minute, because here's what happened. Years later, after that whole evangelical Christian experience, I found myself in Bodhgaya. Sitting under the Bodhi tree where the Buddha achieved enlightenment. And I remember after meditating under the Bodhi tree, I had this thought oh my gosh, if my Southern Baptist grandmother knew that I had gone on the path of the Buddha in India before I ever went to the Holy Land and looked at the path of Jesus, I'd be in big trouble. So there was this sense of uh oh. And I do believe I had to wait for every member of my family of origin to pass away before I could give this talk. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, Pam said, why don't you talk about, you know, integrating the life of the parallel paths of Jesus and the Buddha? And I went, that's a good idea. And I guess I've never had to articulate it, so I'm just going to kind of practice with you all this morning, if you will, bear with me. I had a crisis of faith when I had this speaking ministry in the megachurches, and I was practicing psychology. Most of my referrals came from that community. And in my early 30s, I started advocating for the ordination of homosexuals in the Presbyterian churches. And I just felt it was wrong, because they first said women couldn't be ordained, and then they could. They said you couldn't be divorced, and then you could. And now, gays couldn't be ordained. I just couldn't hear it. And so I would sit with the pastors and talk to them, all the while thinking I was very straight. And, but it was something that was so important to me because my dad had been gay. And he was a firm believer in Christ. He was very involved in our church. He was a dear man. He was a tenor in the choir, had a beautiful voice, just a precious man. And he took his life because he thought he was an abomination. And so I had to talk to those pastors. And in the process of that, guess what? I discovered I was gay. Right, it had been sitting there all along. Jung talks about these complexes. If we don't look at them, they'll just sort of emerge. So there I was, loving a woman, and thinking, what the heck is going on? This is not going to fly. But I had to come out because when I speak, I talk about my life. And I had to be authentic. And so when I came out, I sat with each of the pastors and gave them a statement of faith. They never invited me back to speak again. All my referrals dried up. I was banished. I lost my church community that I loved. I lost, well, I guess I lost my home. I had to foreclose. I had to had to go through bankruptcy. And then I, my life was threatened. So this was back in the early 90s in Irvine. I don't know if you remember some of those things that were going on with proposition. I, I can't remember exactly. But, you know, one of our pastors in one of the progressive churches there had his life threatened at the time. It was a scary time for some of us who were very visible. I always said if there'd been um, a national inquirer for the evangelical Christian community, I might have been on the front page for at least six months. I mean, I was an anathema. So I had to get out of town. I just had to leave. But I didn't know where to go. And so this began, this experience, this crisis, was the cornerstone that toppled my faith, the faith of my childhood. And gradually I deconstructed the faith of my childhood. But I found myself in the desert. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but there's a place called St. Andrew's Abbey that's out in Vallermo in the Antelope Valley. And there's a group of Benedictine monks there who used to uh, have their uh, monastery in China during the, um, the regime. And these guys are incredible. And I had been going there quarterly just for solitude and meditation and contemplative prayer. And I went there and I said, I just need to be here for more than a weekend. I'd like to stay a month. Oh, but they'd never had a woman stay that long, so they had to meet. They had to meet on it. I said, okay, well, you all meet on it, and let me know what you you just get back to me. And so they decided I could stay for a month. I was there for 30 days in the desert. And I call that my desert experience. It was an in-between time. And then I went to Taos, New Mexico, and actually lived in the high desert mesas of northern New Mexico. And so the spaciousness of the land, and also the spaciousness of my heart, and all of it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I guess I was leaving behind the faith of my childhood. Then, when I was teaching for UC Davis, and they'd send me out all over the place because I was flying back and forth from Taos to California, I was up in Berkeley teaching, and I noticed a sign that said, Thich Han was teaching at the Berkeley Community Auditorium. And so I thought, I think that's that little monk that encouraged the other monks to set themselves on fire during the Vietnam War. I want to hear that guy. And so I went, and that was the beginning of my journey on the Buddhist path. I met Jack Cornfield, who's a wonderful man, and really integrates good teacher from Nor- uh, Northern California involved with the Spirit Rock community. And he integrates um, Buddhist truths and teachings um, with psychology. Um, he's a wonderful man. And he and Thich Nhat Hanh taught together at UCLA a group of, I think it was 3,000 therapists. Some of you might have been there. Um, and so it was really a nice homecoming for me when I went to this workshop in UCLA. And I was on my way back home. I was in Taos for 10 years. But then I needed to come back to Southern California. This was my home. And I thought if I was going to come back, it had to be Laguna Beach, right? And so if I was going to be in Orange County, I couldn't be anywhere other than Laguna. So this is where I came. And what happened is, in this deconstruction of my faith, I discovered these Jewish friends who followed their Jewish faith and also the Buddha, and they called themselves Jubus. They're Jubus. And so I thought, well, if they're Jibus, then I'm a Jibu. (laughs) Jesus and Buddha, I'm a Jibu. And so it was sort of this blending that was happening. We were really enjoying the experience, a lot of great discussion and, and practice. I think that's what happened, is I really left the mind and the teaching of the scriptures. I left the Bible, I left my conservative faith behind. And as I entered the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, I didn't read a thing. For a long time I just sat and practiced, I just sat and meditated. I wanted to experience a deeper connection with the divine. I wanted to see what that really was. And um, what I've discovered, and I'll share just a little bit with you, is that when you realize that there are these transcendent truths that are so big, so much bigger than us, that cross cultures and cross religions. Then you can see that Jesus and the Buddha, although they were so many years apart in their particular ministries, or if you will, their teaching periods, so much of what they taught was the same. So there were all these parallel truths. And if you look at the biblical scriptures, or you look at the, the Buddhist suttas, or their scriptures, their Dharma teachings, right, you'll see so many parallels. It's just amazing you'll also see tremendous parallels in these transcendent truths or themes. And I'll just touch on a couple of those. And then when it comes to living the faith, right, to living it, such similar encouragement from Jesus and the Buddha. In fact, some people say they were the same person, that Jesus was somehow a reincarnation of Buddha. Now, I don't know about that. I really don't. Some people say that when Jesus left and we don't have a history from his adolescence to his ministry in his 30s, that he went to India. In fact, there's a place in India where there's, there's a, a, a shrine that supposedly contains Christ's body. So it's, there's this belief that there were parallel lives or maybe the same life. I don't know. Maybe you'd have to take a leap of faith for that. I'm not sure. I went to... How many of you knew about the um, cave exhibit... At the Getty, uh, I guess it was two or three months ago. Yeah. Did you get to go? It was incredible. And basically, what they found is that in the Gobi Desert, along the Silk Road route, there were these caves that were dug into the sandstone and limestone cliffs. And in one of the, and they had the statues of Buddha and other Hindu gods and that sort of thing from the East. But there was one cave that contained scriptures from the Hindu tradition, as well as the Hebrew tradition and the Buddhist tradition. One of the earliest bound printed books, this is before Wittenberg and Luther and all that business, was the Heart Sutra, the teaching of of the heart practice of the Buddha, and that was found in those caves. Fascinating. An integration of faith, an inner faith experience right there in those caves. But when they were born, they were heralded as these infants who were followed and sought out by the wise men, right? Or by others in the Buddhist time. They looked for signs and wonders, and they believed that these these children were divine. Simeon came and said, Oh, Jesus is divine. I'm holding the Christ child, and I know this is God. This is God. And an older hermit hermit with long hair, the suttas teach, came and identified the Buddha as an infant and said, this is the Buddha. Gautama, Siddhartha, this is the Buddha. And so that's in birth. In adolescence, they both, well, they left their mother and father, right? Jesus came from a poor environment. The Buddha came from a wealthy environment. But they both, in adolescence, left their mother and father. There was a time when Jesus was going on a caravan with his parents, you know, and they missed him. They couldn't find him. Where was he? And they understood that he was in the temple. They found him in the temple with rabbis. He was just a, he was an adolescent. And he was teaching truths that there was no way he could have known or at that age. And the same with the Buddha. The Buddha left home. He had so much. He had it all in terms of material wealth, family, parents, all of it. And he left because he wanted to see the world. He had been protected in his affluence. And he went out and he found that there was great suffering in the world, that there were things like aging and things like death. And that transformed him. They both were tempted either in the desert or the forest. You guys know the temptation story of Jesus? When he had to go out into the wilderness and he sat for a long time, I guess it was 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasted. And evidently the devil came to him and offered him bread. He was starving. Offered him bread. Tempted him with that, that hunger, that desire. Offered him all power to move mountains. Right? Or to save his life, if he were to jump down off a cliff, he would, he would be saved. All this power, miraculous power. Or control. He could have dominion over these kingdoms. And in that moment, Christ said no to all the temptations. When I was in Bodh Gaya, there was this spot away from the Bodhi tree where there were these ghats or these steps. There were steps that went down to a lake area. And it was a place of ritual. I mean, imagine... All these prayer flags. Remember the prayer flags you all used to have here, right? Maybe you'll have them again when the monks come. Yeah, but it was a beautiful place—a a lake. And right out in the middle of the lake was this huge statue of the Buddha, you know, sitting in a lotus position. And I, I my teacher at the time, was reading to us a story from Tiknat Han's book, one of his books about the life of the Buddha. And what happened is there was a storm that came up in the midst of his meditation. There was lightning and there was thunder and the waves got so big, it was crazy. And Buddha calmed the waters, parted the waters, and walked out on dry land. Which is such a similar story. When she was teaching it, I thought, oh, that's what Jesus did in the Sea of Galilee, right? Was it it Peter who doubted and... He fell. Jesus said, "Come to me, come to me. Have faith. Come to me." And he was walking on the water. And then he had a moment of doubt, and boom, he crashed. He fell. right? But Jesus calmed the storm, and that's a powerful story. They both perform miracles. They healed the sick. They cast out these very uh, heavy, demonic forces. Mara was sort of like the devil of, of, uh, in the Christian tradition, who was tempting the masses. And they also fed the masses in miracles with fish and loaves. Christ, remember the fish and the loaves story, the parable of the fish and the loaves. He was teaching, and he knew the people were hungry, and so out of these baskets of just a little bread and a little bit of fish, boom, he fed 500 people. The Buddha did the same thing once when he was teaching. So there are so many parallels in their life stories, like in their death, right? Even in their death, when Jesus died there was thunder and there was bolts of lightning and the, the drapes and curtains of the temple were torn asunder when the buddha dro- died again there was an earthquake very similar to the christ so you just i mean when i was over there and hearing these stories about the buddha i'm like these are the parables of my childhood these are the stories and the myths or whatever of the christ of the life of christ so similar it caused me to wonder. But then, I think there were also similar teachings or truths, and I, I won't go into all of them because there, there are many. Um, the one in particular that I like is interbeing. Thich Han talks about the dissolution of the self. When we really practice, when we really go into deep meditation, we lose a sense of self and we realize that we're one with everything, right? That's the principle of inner being. It's a powerful thought. And John 14, I think you guys read it. I mean, there's this time when the disciples were saying, Jesus, don't die on us. We we can't have you do that because we're not going to make it. And he says, well, it's better that I go because if I do, then the Holy Spirit will come in and give you power, power to love, and to discern, and, and wisdom. And then he said this, and this is so Buddhist. He said, remember, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, and therefore, right? So that's about as, as Buddhist and Zen as you can get in terms of inner being. We're all one. We're unified in Christ, or in love. Just love that. But then there's this other teaching that has become so important to me. And then I'll just finish with a bit of application. But this teaching, I think I need something in order to. Let's see if I have this. Oh, wait. This is my, oh, here. Hold on. I need this. I need you to see this. This is important. This is very important. Especially if there's, any kid, if there's any children in the audience. So, I'll never forget this moment when Thich Han did this teaching on no birth and no death. And he said, where does your life come from? Where does your life go? And he sat there in his peaceful state, you know, just enrapturing all of us. And he said, It's like this. It's like this flame. Where did this flame come from? Where was it? Where was it? It exists now. Where did that flame go? Where did it go? It still exists. It existed before, it existed after, like the alpha and the omega that Christ talked about, or eternal life. We just don't die. We've always been there because we've always been love. And that was the teaching, right? Is that there are certain, like the clouds in the sky, certain conditions manifest and come together to create our lives, our individual lives. It's pretty amazing. And when those conditions don't exist anymore our manifested physical lives disappear. But the energy of love that's always been there, that ocean of love continues. One of the most powerful experiences I've had, and and this is where the application comes in, right? Because the application, and I think for my faith experience, and maybe for yours, is that we study, we learn, We search the scriptures, we want to know the teachings, but we we sit and we practice, and we, you know, it's like in that moment of stillness, be still and know that I am God, which is the contemplative Christian path, or the path of the Desert Fathers, or the path of the mystics in Catholicism. Be still and know that I am God. In the Theravada tradition, it's about Vipassana, or mindfulness meditation, or sitting and following the breath, or of the absorption or concentration practice, which they call the jhana, right? Or the metta practice, which is practice for self-compassion and the compassion of others, like Jesus taught the great commandment, God is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the teaching. That was the application. Just love. And when I was... On retreat and I'd been doing this meditation for almost 10 years without reading much and again I'm not a Buddhist scholar so please don't assume that I might be but it was mostly just experience of meditating and I was in northern New Mexico on retreat and I had an experience that they describe and I later found it in the books of the jhanas a deep experience of absorption wherein as I was meditating for a long time. Everyone was out of the temple. I was the only one sitting. And it was well after midnight. I'd been sitting maybe four hours. And I realized my back was no longer hurting. I was no longer falling asleep. My knees didn't hurt. There was no pain. And then I realized, wait a second, I'm not sure I can feel my body. But then when I focused on it, my body was doing this. It's like my face was feeling like this. Sort of morphing, or like a frog when a frog breathes. I would breathe in, and it felt like my body was going woo, and then woo, sort of like that. And then there was this moment where I realized I really wasn't breathing at all. Like my systems were shutting down, and I thought I'm not breathing, and I got scared. I'm like, oh my gosh, I could die. I mean, maybe I am dying. I don't know. And then I had a panic. Right? Because I realized I was about to leave my body, and it felt like death. And I got scared, and then I realized I had a choice. Do I go or do I stay? Do I go or do I stay? And I decided to go. I went, yes. And it was like I popped and out of my body, and there was no more Michelle. It was so refreshing. <laughs> you know how when you have kids and it's no more about you, it's all about them? It's so refreshing not to have an ego at times, isn't it? I was gone. There was no me, no self, nothing. I was in the bliss of love. It was as if I was the cosmos, the stars, the heavens, the galaxies, but I wasn't I. I, So I can't explain it to you because I have to be here to talk about it. But I wasn't there. It was just love. It was bliss. And they say that that is the fruit of the spirit of deep meditation practice for many years. Or not. I hadn't even been practicing that long when that happened. I didn't know what happened to me. And I had never done psychedelic drugs. (laughs) But I learned later that sometimes that's the experience of loss of self, the dissolution of self, or impermanence. And realizing that we are love. We are the Christ. We are the Buddha. Christ taught about the Incarnation the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us and in the body of Christ, the body of believers. And Mr. Reverend Kluger talked about his gratitude for each of you. In the body of Christ, we each have a function, we each have a role, we each have a part. We are the living body of Christ. That's, that's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. And so there it is the incarnation. The Buddha says, there's got to be a lot of Buddhas. There's got to be a lot of Bodhisattvas because there's a lot of suffering. And the whole point of the Buddhas coming back and staying, rather than hanging out up there in divine love, was to really relieve suffering, to create as many Bodhisattvas or Buddhas as he, as the, as he could by teaching and demonstrating these things. People were changed. Suffering ceased. So here's what I want to end with. The fruits of the Spirit, as you sang today, and as you read in the scriptures, I think it's in Galatians or something. I used to know all those verses by heart. Thank you. 522? Yes, he prayed that this morning. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And self control. Wow, that's cool. That's not just about character, that's about action, patience. I could use a lot more of that. Self control, yeah, maybe that too. Definitely love. Jesus said to love one another, and that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, as I said earlier, yourself and your neighbor. The Buddha said, it's about the meta practice loving yourself loving god the buddha and loving others even strangers even those that are difficult for you that's the meta practice and it's a powerful one so that's the story the fruits of the spirit are love joy peace patience kindness the fruits of meditation deep meditation or the contemplative practice are joy, peace, which you all sang about, talked about, bliss, equanimity, which means that we're not reactionary. We can respond to pain or to pleasure or to neutrality the same way. So I guess what's happening is the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of the Christ and the spirit of the Buddha and the spirit of the Christ are really living in me and doing a work in me, and I have no idea... Well, yes, I guess I do know where I'm going to end up. I'm going to end up not being an I. I'm going to end up being with you and being with all of creation, with all of it. And so just take that and let it work in you and as much as possible, apply the love, right? It's about love and action. Compassion was the main teaching of the Buddha, one of the main teachings. I think. Compassion is love in action. Yeah. Love in action. That's social justice. That's engaged Buddhism. Social justice, engaged Buddhism. So, you know what? Go do it. Go do it, live it, and let it, let it, let it in. Thank you. Thank you.